0: And welcome to Calvary Chapel, Modesto. As you can see, Pastor Damien's not with us this evening. My name's Tom Hinman, and I'm one of the assisting pastors here at the church. During the week, you'll find me tucked away safely in that little corner office over there, the front office. And then on Sundays, you'll find me in that very wonderful church library located on the ground floor of the educational building over on that side. Just out to the door to your left. Now, this is the time in the service when many of you are truly yearning for a commercial for the church library. (laughs) I know you're out there. However, others are probably reaching for your remote, hoping to fast forward through this announcement if you could. So I'm going to make it short and sweet. You'll find the library open each Sunday after all three services. It's your place of one-stop browsing for Christian books and DVDs and all kinds of really good quality material. There, that wasn't so painful. (laughs) Do you applaud for commercials at home on TV when you watch Oh, wow, soap. I love that. (laughs) I'm touched. You love your library. (laughs) Well, with that now all out of the way, it's my joy to open up the scriptures with you this evening. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. Our theme this evening is the fear of failure. It's one thing to fail, but another thing to be paralyzed by such fear ahead of time. This whole thing of the fear of failing. The passage in front of us describes a very familiar incident with Moses, which may prove insightful as we face a common fear in our lives. Let's begin with verse 10 of Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and I will be with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. Uh, Well, when I wasn't sitting in a large lecture hall or cramming for midterms in the library, I spent a lot of my time during college as part of a local chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's one of those student ministries that was very active on our secular campus. We had weekly Bible studies and monthly meetings, but most of our time was spent hanging out together in a basement inside one of the campus club buildings. They had these big buildings on campus, and they had rooms and places for all the different clubs on campus. They put us in the basement. What can I say? And while a lot of our casual discussions focused on being a positive witness to unbelieving students, and then answering the objections to Christianity that were posed by our college professors, a good amount of time was also spent, to no surprise, analyzing our individual hopes for dating and marriage in the future. We were college students. That's what college students think about. At least that's what we did. Now, there was a fairly large pool of godly men and women in the group, so the prospect for campus romances really looked promising. Now, I can't speak for the discussions that the women had on this subject, but the guys were continually comparing notes on who to approach and when to make their first move. Now, if there were female newcomers into the group... What would happen is that all of a sudden then the guys would sort of caucus together and we would sort of compare notes on who to approach and when to make our first move. Um, It was sad, but we were doing this. We were very planning. The goal was not to have two guys ask the same woman out at the same time. Now, you have to understand all this was playing out in the early 70s when dating in Christian circles was still very traditional. A godly woman was expected to passively wait until the guy asks them out. (laughs) Now, they could subtly make their interest known to a gentleman who piqued their interest, but that was as far as it went. The dating ball was always in the guy's court. Uh, How things have changed. (laughs) Now, you would think that there would be a whirlwind of social activity with engagements being announced continually, but alas, this was not the case. Even with the women outnumbering the men two to one in our group, very few dates occurred, and only one engagement happened during my four years as a member of this InterVarsity Christian Fellowship group. Now, there was no internet back then, which meant no Christian dating apps, no swiping right, and not even texting. A guy had to take the risk of rejection by personally asking a woman out. But what made things really, really frustrating for the women in our group was one particular really good-looking guy. He was also, get this, a star athlete, really smart, and he came from a rich family. The women kept their dance cards clear for him, believe me. <laughs> really, hot prospect. But the problem, even with all of his personal advantages, he was terrified of asking any woman out. His fear was that, well, things might not work out relationally, and then he would go through life in a loveless marriage, if not an actual divorce. So this guy, he took the safe route, and he just he didn't date at all in college. Can you imagine a guy like that? Not a single date. He was terrified. Alas, fear has a way of spreading through the ranks. We figured that if this guy did not feel comfortable taking a chance on love... What hope did we have? I mean, if Prince Charming was worried about entering the fray, we'd better retreat from the front lines as well while we still had a chance. None of us, really, none of us wanted to fail relationally as adults before we even graduated from college. Now, the women in the group saw the handwriting on the wall, and then they quietly left, enjoyed a rival campus ministry at the university across town, Really, And actually, the male-to-female ratio was pretty even, you know, one-to-one. And from what I heard, this greener pasture really worked out better for them. They had a ministry as well as a proper social life. True story. But as for the male Lonely Hearts Club at my campus, the guys, we eventually we went on to graduate college, and when we did, it sort of, we escaped our corporate fear of failure. And over time, we found the courage to ask women out on dates, and most of us ended up happily married. We were relieved to escape the fear that ruled over our lives completely, at least relationally, while we were on campus. Ah, the fear of failure. Well, tonight, I really would like to talk about this fear of failure that we see with Moses and other characters in the Bible. We're going to discover the positive and teachable impact that failure failure can have in our lives and see how the Lord will often use it use it to draw us closer to himself we'll learn how when God calls us to a particular task the true measure of success will be our obedience and faithfulness to his call not necessarily statistical results now most of us know the story of God calling Moses from a burning bush to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt in Exodus chapter 3 Moses begins a series of excuses for why he should not be the one given this assignment. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he points out his lack of credentials in the eyes of the people. In verse 13, his concern is how to properly identify God to the children of Israel. Then in verse 1 of chapter 4, Moses raises the issue of whether the people will know that the Lord truly sent him. And this brings us then to verse 10 in our text tonight, where the question is whether Moses was eloquent enough to speak with Pharaoh. Moses declares in verse 10 that he's slow of speech and slow of tongue. He didn't feel that he had the natural gifting of oration to be able to speak before Pharaoh. He feared that things would not go well if he was to be God's spokesperson before the ruler of Egypt. Now, all of Moses' excuses may have been true on some level. He may have had an accurate picture of himself. What they highlighted was his own lack of faith and trust in the Lord. He was relying on his own abilities rather than what God could accomplish through him, just as he was. We, too, may have an accurate perception of our own skill sets, but this should not be the main criteria for discerning the will of God for us. To assume that the Lord will only call us into service where our natural talent lies is to cut ourselves off from truly discovering what God may have for us. We fear being stretched, so we only choose safe areas of ministry where we can think we can possibly succeed just based on our own abilities. And God will use that, and great, everyone's happy, I'm playing in my strong suit, God uses me, end of story. It's interesting that God's response to Moses' excuse in verse 11, was a single question. He simply asked, who made your mouth, Moses, as well as the abilities of everyone else on the planet? The Lord was fully aware of Moses' skill set. His natural talent was not the issue. The real question was whether or not Moses would obey God and trust him to see Moses through this assignment. God promised in verse 12 to be with his mouth, Mouth and to teach Moses everything he needed to say. The script was already written. All he had to do was deliver the message to Pharaoh. But this was not good enough for Moses, so he pleaded in verse 13 for someone else to be sent. This did not win Moses any points with the Lord, as you see in verse 14. The fact that Moses' response kindled God's anger shows how important obedience is to the Lord. Moses did not feel that he was the right man for the job, so he asked that God find somebody else. So onto the scene comes Aaron, the older brother of Moses. Since he was an articulate person, Aaron would become the spokesperson to the people for God through Moses. God would remain the instructor for both of them. They did not have to make anything up. As verse 15 declares, they will be well taught. This was part of a very gracious concession on the part of the Lord. Now I find it fascinating that even though God knew Aaron was the better public speaker, he still initially asked Moses to be his spokesperson. Natural talent is not always the basis for God's call upon our lives. We assume that the Lord will automatically pick the best skilled people for his assignments. We forget his hidden agenda in choosing the weak in order that his power and glory will be evident in the finished product. Moses could be confident in the success of his assignment. This is because in verse 12 of the previous chapter, God comes right out and says, I will certainly be with you. And then in verses 12 and 15 of our text this evening, he repeats, I will be with your mouth. I don't know of any better guarantee of success than the presence of the Lord. Now, Moses was not the only person in the Bible who had to deal with failure. It started right with Adam and Eve who failed to obey God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since then, men and women have all fallen short of the glory of God by their actions. Personal failure has become all of our portions. Perhaps the most obvious example of direct failure can be found with the Apostle Peter. After promising never to deny Christ, Peter denied him three times before his crucifixion. For this failure, Peter wept bitterly. Jesus, though, publicly forgave and restored Peter, right in public. And Peter's ministry was transformed right after that. And when you look at many of the characters in the Bible, you'll see that the Lord continually allows them to fail, sometimes repeatedly. Now, God could have prevented such failures... But then those individuals would not have learned valuable lessons about themselves and their relationships with God. Like the parent who sometimes has to allow their children to learn some difficult lessons the hard way, our Heavenly Father sees the big picture, and as a result, he allows us to fail. Failure isn't truly failure unless we fail to learn from it. As one famous speaker has declared, Let failure become your teacher, not your undertaker. Sometimes our failures can teach us more than our successes. In contrast to this, wallowing in our failures can be the demise of our future ministry, and our labors become burial fodder for the undertaker. Now, failure can happen to any of us. Albert Einstein failed his university entrance exams on his very first attempt. Thomas Edison experienced over 1,000 failures before he was finally able to develop the first working light bulb. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team in his sophomore year. If you can believe it, Michael Jordan failed in high school. And even Charlie Chaplin, he came in third place in the Charlie Chaplin look-alike competition. (laughs) Can you imagine third place? Ah, oh, failure! In a fallen world, failure is to be expected. Can you imagine that? Oh, anyway, he goes home that night. <laughs> Anyways, I wasn't there, but ah, oh, failure, failure. All of us in this room have failed at least at one point or another in our lives. And it can leave a terrible taste in our mouths and scar us emotionally. A common response is to become fearful of taking any risks lest we slip into failure again. June Hunt, who many of you know, a popular author and radio personality, she's written a helpful little booklet entitled Success Through Failure. Hmm, I just happen to have a copy of it right here. Wow, where did that go? That just just appeared underneath. Hmm, this is interesting. You know, I wonder if there's some place at the church where someone could check out a copy of this for free. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Hmm, I'm going to look into that. I'll get back to you if I find that there's such a place they could check it out. But a great little book. It's been really, really helpful. And in it, June Hunt describes how the fear of failing again can create an emotional paralysis, preventing us from taking any action or making any decision at all for fear of being wrong. She does this through three words, starting with the letter P. The first being paralysis. That can really seize us if we're so afraid of failure that we just don't want to take any action whatsoever. We become paralyzed. The second P of pride can come into play where we refuse to engage in activities out of fear of being less than perfect or inferior to others. At least that's what it will seem if we fail. And then it can also lead to the third P of procrastination, where we put off tackling an assignment and the assignment out of fear of doing it poorly. It's her three Ps of paralysis, pride, and procrastination. Now, sometimes failure is a product of our own poor decisions. There's a common proverb that I really like, and it says, Failure to prepare is preparation for failure. We set ourselves up for failure when we exercise poor planning. We fail to heed the counsel of the book of Proverbs, which declares in chapter 15, verse 22, Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. It's no wonder then that many of us live in a perpetual state of fear of failure. And Moses was no different. But with Aaron at his side, Moses went on by the grace of God to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Even though he was in the will of God, things did not go well at first. Pharaoh continued to oppress the Hebrew people. And it got to the point at the end of chapter 5, that Moses said to God, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you've sent me? Moses was filled with uncertainty, and the scent of failure was in the air. We all know the story of how God, through Moses, successfully delivered the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The end of the story was never in doubt in the mind of God. Any setbacks along the way were not failures, but bumps in the road that served as teachable moments for Moses and for us today. If we're to overcome our fear of failure, we need to accept the fact that the ultimate outcomes from steps of our faith lie with God and not with ourselves. If we're faithful to do what the Lord has called us to do, we can rest knowing that our labors are not in vain, whatever the results seem to be immediately or on the surface as Paul declared at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's reassuring to know that ultimate failure is not an option when our labor is in the Lord. Now, positive things can come from failure besides these teachable moments. Having a history filled with failure can make us more sensitive and gracious to others when they fail, especially when they fail us. It creates in us a sense of humility, especially in our expectations for others. Since we're not perfect, we should not expect perfection from those around us. Another benefit from failure is breaking us of the illusion that we have ultimate control over our lives. Imagine that we don 't completely control every situation of our lives. Fear is often the result when we realize that we are no longer we no longer have control over a situation. This occurs when we rely completely upon ourselves rather than trusting in the sovereign will of god we 're setting ourselves up for failure when we lose this eternal perspective, as Corey Ten Boom has taught us, and this is really wise she said. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. When we learn to trust the Lord for our future outcomes, over which we have no control, the burden of feeling responsible for everything that happens will disappear. We have to make the choice of stepping out in faith and just trusting in the Lord, rather than continuing to doubt God's wisdom. Fear of failure in this area will then become a moot point if we put our trust completely in the Lord. Perhaps this is why we read in Proverbs 24:16, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. If we're not trusting in the Lord to make straight our paths, failure over time will result in calamity. We wrongly place our hopes on our personal skills and successes rather than on what God may be doing behind the scenes. We're simply threads in God's tapestry for the work of beauty that he's weaving for himself. And like any tapestry, as you've seen them in museums, the disjointed threads on the back of the fabric, they're essential to the production of the artwork, but yet they're unseen by the public. Those of you who've done basic tapestry know that it's all in the back is where all the threads are tied together and sealed off. Not the most impressive view. It's the front of the tapestry that's important. In fact, that front of the tapestry is what people pay money to see. But much of the hard work remains hidden behind the exterior of the fabric, unseen by the public. A lot of our hard work will be unseen by those around us and yet God is weaving a beautiful tapestry. And this brings in that dynamic of spiritual warfare that becomes very obvious during times of our own personal failure. While we're kicking ourselves for what we just failed to accomplish, the accuser of the brethren will be quick to whisper into our ears that we really are that pathetic, and we should quit now while the quitting is good. It keeps us from seeing the one who makes beauty from ashes, as we just sang about earlier tonight, and turns our failures eventually into victories. Let me give you a beautiful example. I've always been impressed with the Japanese art form known as kintsuki. We have an example of it up on the screen. Now, this is fascinating. This is the art of mending broken ceramics by pouring gold or silver between the shattered pieces. The end result is to make the finished product more beautiful and of more value than the original. As you can see, what makes this art form so special is the cracks and the fractures. They're being emphasized, even celebrated, because your eye is drawn to that. Wow, I see it. But that was what was broken, that was what was destroyed, that was the failure, a ceramic being dropped or broken. But this is beautiful, the artist doesn't try to hide the brokenness of the original artifact. The exact opposite is true. Where the damaged parts have been restored is where one's attention is drawn to. Something beautiful results when this restoration takes place. We can experience, too, also, this brokenness when we have failed. We may feel that our life has become shattered and it's in pieces. But it's only when we turn to God and learn from our mistake that he heals us and makes, as we see, beauty from ashes, or in this case, from ceramic shards. Those golden lines of learned experiences, it's a work of art in our lives. It's a poema that the Lord uses from our failures for his glory. God is glorified, and this art form shows it beautifully. Alas, our present culture is focused on perfection, on doing everything without a fault. In our fallen world, though, God has a very different perspective. As we saw with Moses, the Lord takes broken vessels and people that the world sees as weak to accomplish his purposes. Failures and all. This is his secret hidden agenda, as 2 Corinthians 4, 7 declares, but we have this treasure, treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. See this pattern emerging? It's all of God, not of us. Earthen vessels tend to break very easily Thankfully, we have a divine potter who has mastered the art of repair and is able to restore us, like the Apostle Peter, to a better place after we've failed. God's not-so-hidden agenda can be found in the continual restoration of his people. We are God's poema. He restores us. He repairs us. He takes beauty from ashes and does an incredible work in each and every one of our lives. Perhaps we'll be on the other side of glory when we'll be able to see it fully. But he's doing it, will do it, and continues to do it. He restores, heals, and makes beautiful things out of the lives of his people. But sadly, our culture chooses perfection over brokenness. A pristine piece of ceramics is to be preferred over a repaired piece of pottery. It's obvious that our culture would have a difficult time developing the type of Japanese art that we saw earlier. Our culture, we just don't do well with brokenness. Now, Certainly, the fruit of such brokenness in our lives is humility. Failure has a way of shattering our pride, like a piece of ceramic, and it forces us to see ourselves as we truly are. It's then that we can turn to the Lord as our true source of our identity and of our success. It's the humble person who knows their limitations and their need for divine assistance in every endeavor. One of the main lessons that we can learn from Moses' call to ministry is that trust and obedience is the proper response when God asks us to serve him. Not skill, not personality profiles, or any other things that we may have worked up about ourselves. It's God's call upon our lives. The Lord's anger in verse 14 was justified because it implied that he didn't know what he was doing by selecting Moses for this assignment. The future success of the assignment was in God's hands, not in the hands of Moses. This seems to be a pattern throughout history. Many of the Old Testament prophets did not live to see the fruits of their labors. Many suffered martyrdom or persecution for their teachings. Jeremiah labored for many years without seeing many results. But these prophets were faithful and God honored their service in the years to come. With the death of so many Christians during the Roman persecutions, outside observers would have thought that this new religion would end in complete failure. But as the church father Tertullian reflected, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. Where many saw failure, God saw victory. Now this pattern continues even into our own day. I'll give you an example. In 1912, a medical missionary named Dr. William Leslie went to live and minister to a tribal people in a remote part of the Republic of Congo. He faithfully served there for 17 years, only to return to the United States as a deeply discouraged man. He believed that he utterly failed to make any impact for Christ in all those years he spent in the Congo. And then he died nine years later. But then, in 2010... Another missionary team returned to that area and found a whole network of churches spreading out throughout that dense jungle where Dr. Leslie served. God had honored his obedience in going to the Congo, and he gave growth to the gospel seeds that were planted there all during the time that Dr. Leslie served. All those seeds, they were planted a century earlier, and now a century later, they saw the fruit. Dr. Leslie would never know his legacy and the blessing that he was to all those people in Africa. Similar stories could be told from other missionaries throughout time and around the world. What appears to be failure on the surface is actually a believer being faithful to God without being able to see the whole picture. The Lord honors our faithful service in ways that we might not ever see in our lifetimes. That doesn't mean that we're a failure. It just means that we may not live to see what God will do through all of our lives. Now, this is certainly true with parents. You've invested years of time, resources, and prayer into your children's lives, all the while not knowing the eventual eventual fruit of your labor. Construction workers and business people may have built careers around serving others that will see their greatest impact only on future generations. Artists, musicians may be unknown in their own day, as many were. And yet, leave their mark on history for centuries to come through their beautiful compositions, their works of art that we enjoy now and rejoice in, yet in their own time. Yeah. Meh. And they were ignored. We limit our perception of God and His sovereignty when we define an activity as a failure so quickly. We have no idea what the future may hold and how our actions will make an impact for the kingdom of God in the future. But in the same way, we should be careful about rushing around to label an outreach as a big success simply based on the number of filled seats or supposed professions of faith that we all see just on the outside. We don't know what's really going on in the hearts of people. We don't know which seed fell upon good soil and which seed would hit rocky soil or be eaten by the birds or trampled underfoot. Only the Lord knows the hearts that have truly been transformed by the gospel. Church history is littered with alleged revivals that swept into a town for a week and then leave nothing of value for follow-up and discipleship because the labor was not of the Lord. Our calling, like Moses, is for obedience and faithfulness. Should the Lord bring forth lasting fruit in our lifetime that we're able to actually see, well, we can rejoice in that. But we can't be guaranteed that we'll be able to see it. And we shouldn't base our own ministry success or faith or failure based on what we actually experience or see. We just have to be careful not to quickly declare success or failure based on superficial results from our ministries. Knowing the big picture of God's activity in the world, it's way above our pay grade. We should simply be content with knowing that we've been found faithful in the present moment of what God has called us to do. Ultimately, Moses will not physically enter the promised land that he had set his eye upon. In Numbers 20, he strikes a rock twice to provide water for the people rather than speaking to it as God commanded. For his disobedience, Moses was only allowed to look out upon the promised land from atop Mount Nebo. Just like with sin, sometimes failure can have lasting consequences, especially when it's our own fault. Moses lost his access to the promised land by his disobedience. Ananias and Sapphira both lost their lives in Acts chapter 5 for lying to the Holy Spirit. We can learn from our failures, but sometimes we have to pay a price for them as well when they're done in disobedience to the Lord. That's why we should never casually regard failure as a nothing burger. We should not fear it, as we've seen tonight, but we should also be serious about our obedience and faithfulness to the call of God upon our lives. Making mistakes is one thing, but to willfully turn our backs on what the Lord is asking us to do is a recipe for disaster and an invitation for failure. When failure has entered our lives as a result of sin, there's only one possible response. This is when we're called to confess our sin and experience God's forgiveness. Repentance is the first step in overcoming sinful failure, as Lamentations 3:22 to 23 declares, and I know many of you have memorized it, "Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness," again, as we sang tonight. The Lord will always be faithful to forgive our sins as we come to Him in repentance. We never need to fear that our failure would cause him to leave us or forsake us. It goes without saying, then, that failure should never define us as a people. By keeping short accounts with the Lord, we can receive forgiveness for our sin and move on to the next thing, confident that we're starting fresh with God. Moses was used powerfully by the Lord because he did not allow his personal failures to derail what God was doing to deliver the nation of Israel. If the scent of a past failure is still lingering in your mind and heart, now is the time to set it at the feet of the Lord and to move on. He has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. In the same way, our identity is in Christ, not in our missteps. We know that all things work together for good in the Lord, even our failures. It may take years for us to discern God's handiwork in our lives, but the pattern will emerge as the Lord slowly directs our paths. He will be faithful to complete it. The fear of failure can be real, whether it's leading a nation out of Egypt or even asking a woman out on the date. Left to our own devices and skill sets, the outlook may not look promising for any of us, but done in faithfulness and in obedience to what the Lord's call is upon our lives, the results are in better hands than our own and will rest in a future shaped by the one who inhabits eternity. Failure should never have the last word in our lives. Instead, we should simply hope to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. I know of no greater success in life than hearing that statement from God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father... We confess that our lives have been filled with failure. There have been great joys in knowing you and walking with you, but in times we stumble. But our joy, our confidence is in you, in your mercy, in your grace, in your sovereignty, in your power over each and every one of our lives. And you do make beauty from ashes. You take that which we have done and offer to you And as we come to you in faith and trust in you, you turn it into something beautiful, something glorious. The poema that you're doing in each and every one of our lives, that work of art that is your restoration, your mercy, your grace, your love, you pour it out so abundantly in each and every one of our lives. And we just thank you for that this evening. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can come to you amidst our failures and put our hope and our trust in you. Thank you for your care for us. We cast all our cares upon you because you do care for us. Thank you, Jesus. We give you thanks and praise for your mercy and for all things and do so in your name. Amen.